So as we begin this morning, um, don't open your Bible yet. We'll get there. We're going to be in Philippians 3. But before we, before we turn to Philippians 3, I want to read a series of Bible verses that, that I hope will set the tone for where we're going. And so just listen to these. You'll be familiar with most of them, but just listen to them and let them, let them wash over you. Just absorb the truth in a fresh way. Matthew 19, 23 Jesus said to his disciples, truly, I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Mark 10, 17, as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him, so this is Jesus, and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Luke 14, so therefore any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. That's Jesus speaking. Matthew 13, again, Jesus speaking. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. And so I think it's easy for us to hear these. We're familiar with each one of these accounts. If you've been in the church for long, you've probably heard these. And so it's easy for our familiarity to, to, to breed apathy and for us to overlook how severe and how exclusive these statements from Christ really are. These are strong words. These are hard sayings. These are difficult things to process. But the truth that these verses clearly communicate is that our relationship with Jesus is all or nothing. There's no such thing as half-hearted Christianity in the New Testament. You cannot serve God and anything else. But Jesus says that in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6. So let's pray together, and then we'll get to Philippians 3. Lord, I pray that as you work in our hearts this morning, that you would open us up, that you would help us to see this truth from a, a, a passage that's likely familiar in a fresh way, and that our familiarity with it would not result in apathy, but that it would result in love for you and in pursuit of you this week and for the rest of our lives. And so be with us, we pray. I, I pray that your word would speak to us as your spirit illuminates it, and I pray that you would change us in the process. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. So turn to Philippians 3. We're going to cover verses 4 through 11, Philippians 3, 4 through 11. We'll read it together. And then we'll just, we'll just walk through it. It's going to be simple, a simple approach. 
You guys should be glad I, I brought smart water for your sake. So. so Philippians 3, 4 through 11. Let me read. We'll pick up at the end of verse 4. Paul speaking, and he says, If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the tribe of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things. I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And so let me just set the context. We didn't cover verses one and two uh, and three, beginning of verse four. So let me just set a little bit of context here, set the stage. So in the first verses of chapter three, Paul is arguing against a false teaching that was prevalent in the early church. And so it was a false teaching that taught that you needed to add works to your faith in Christ in order to be saved. So the atonement of Christ on the cross, it wasn't enough in their estimation. You needed to continue to follow the Old Testament law, and you needed to adhere to the Old Testament law as part of your salvation. And so this, this heresy was called the heresy of the Judaizers, and Paul is arguing against them here. And, and so this, this teaching, this false teaching, can be summarized as Christ plus works saves you. You need to work alongside Christ for your salvation. And so Paul has really strong words for these false teachers. In verse 2, he calls them dogs, which I don't think is a compliment, because the next thing he says is they're evildoers. And so in his estimation, these are people who are leading the people in the church away from Christ and towards hell. That's what Paul believes. These false teachers believed in Christ, they affirmed that Christ died on the cross. They were in the church, so to speak. But they also believed that you needed to work alongside Christ for your salvation. You needed to heap your accomplishments on top of Christ to be approved, to be validated, to be justified, to be considered righteous. And so Paul disagrees. Paul could not disagree in more strong language. And so that's, that takes us to verse 4. So let's walk through our text. So look at the end of verse 4 with me here. And Paul says, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And so Paul's basically saying, look, if anyone, if anyone has a reason to base their salvation on what they've accomplished, on, on their pedigree, it's me. I mean, my, my resume's pretty good. And so he lists his resume in verses 4 and 5 and 6. Paul was an impressive figure. He was successful by nature of his birth. He's a Hebrew of Hebrews of the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised on the eighth day. Stuff that he has no control over adds to his accomplishments. But then he accomplishes a lot, too. He achieves a lot. He's a successful guy within his community. And so I, I, as we think about the achievements of Paul, as we think about the accomplishments of Paul, I think it immediately forces us to step back and say, okay, what, what do we consider to be our highest achievements? What is it that's most noteworthy that you've achieved in your life? 
What are the things that, that make you feel safe, that make you feel secure, that give you some sense of purpose? That's what this is for Paul. We all have that. For most of us, it's not religious accolades like Paul had, but we all have something. And as you consider that, look down with me at verses 7 and 8, where Paul says, but whatever gain I had, referring to what he just considered all his assets, his achievements, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things. I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And so in, in Paul's estimation, so in his, his way of thinking, the credentials of his past, his achievements, his accolades, were not valuable at all. They were rubbish. They were garbage. Except as they could be used in his pursuit of Jesus. In, in and of themselves, they were useless to him. They were throwaway. They didn't matter. What mattered was Jesus. That's it. And so you have to ask the question, why? Why does Paul think this way? And so notice this phrase from verse 8. Look down at verse 8 with me. And he says this, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Simply put, Christ, or Paul found something more valuable. Paul found something more worthwhile. Paul found something more weighty that he could give himself to. Paul was struck by the weight of the glory of Christ, by his beauty, by his surpassing value. He experienced Jesus, and suddenly everything else just kind of paled in comparison. Everything else just faded to the background and was absolutely worthless in his estimation. And the truth is, as we think about it, we are all looking for something weighty and valuable to throw our weight behind. We're all looking for something worthwhile to serve. We're looking for a cause, we're looking for a person, we're looking for a career, we're looking for a family, something that we can be part of and that we can give ourselves to. And what Paul's saying is, Jesus is what you're looking for. Jesus is the foundational reality, the ultimate truth. He's the one of surpassing worth. It doesn't matter what else you compare him to, he surpasses it. And he surpasses it in such a way that everything else looks like garbage. Everything else looks like rubbish. Jesus is better. He's more beautiful, more valuable, more weighty, more worthy. And so St. Augustine said that our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Paul experienced that. Paul experienced the, the purpose and the, 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 the joy of placing his hope and his expectation on Christ and subsequently how everything else fades into the background. So consider a conversation. This is parallel. It's from Jesus. You don't need to turn here, but Luke chapter 14, starting in verse 25, and, and this is a, an account in the life of Jesus. It says this, Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, so this is kind of almost a, it's almost a, a comical, when you, when, you, when you think about some accounts in the life of Christ, you almost, there's almost a sense of humor behind them. There's a bit of an irony or a, uh, there's a bit of a, it causes you to grin a little bit. So these crowds following Jesus, he turns and he says to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. 
Like, are you trying to draw people in or are you trying to push people away? Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So a couple of things. First, Jesus is not out to win any popularity contests. He does not care what you think of him. He's not your typical smooth-talking politician. He says it like it is, and he says it directly. But second, Jesus isn't literally telling people that they need to hate their families. You see plenty of other situations in the New Testament where Jesus affirms and even demonstrates love for family, for his mother, for his brothers, for his sisters, for those closest to him. So Jesus is not telling us to actually hate our family. What he's doing is he's saying, in comparison to your love for me, your love for family should seem like hatred. It's not an absolute hatred, and it's like, wow, I hate you guys so that I can love Jesus. It can be both and. It just means that your love for Christ surpasses your love for family in such a way that it seems like hatred in comparison. And that, that goes back to what Paul's saying, the surpassing worth. Christ is above, Christ is beyond, Christ is more worthy than anything else that we could place our hope and our love on. And so that's what Paul's saying in Philippians 3, 7 and 8. Paul is living out this truth from Jesus, and he's living out the truth of the parable of the, the treasure hidden in the field that we read earlier. He's willing to sell everything to get Christ, because Christ alone is worth it. Any cost, any sacrifice, any loss, Christ is the only worthy object of our deepest love and worship. And so the simple question, again, to step back and to think about it, what, how, does this, how does this collide with our lives? The simple question for us is where do our deepest affections find their home? To what or to whom belongs your highest love, your deepest devotion, your most diehard allegiance. Look down with me at verses 8 and 9. Paul continues at the very end of verse 8, and he says, In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on Faith. And so notice how Paul phrases this. This is intentional. Notice the last words of verse 8, in order that I may gain Christ. To gain, so to gain Christ, just so we're clarifying terms, to gain Christ is to be in Christ, to be forgiven, to have his righteousness instead of your own, to be redeemed, to be saved. That's what it means to gain Christ. But what's interesting is how we gain Christ. What does the text say? It says that we suffer the loss of all things, and we consider them as rubbish in order that we may gain Christ. And so you might say, but wait, I thought it was faith. I thought faith is how we gained Christ, and it is. But there's two sides to the coin of faith. There's repentance and there's faith. This is the repentance side of that coin. Part of the condition of true faith is a willingness to renounce all things but Jesus. That's repentance. It's turning away from self-earned righteousness and towards Christ. And so this is parallel to Jesus when he says, whoever wishes to come after me must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said it this way. He said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. So we have to die to self in order to follow Christ. Whoever wishes to follow Jesus must renounce all other things. It's a condition of true faith. It's like the disciples leaving their boats and their careers when Jesus called them to follow him. They're leaving behind something so that 
they can follow Jesus. Repentance is turning and following in faith. And so then in verse 9, Paul is telling us, uh, when you refer back to verses 4, 5, and 6, Paul is telling us that he tried that old way. He tried the self-achieved salvation. He achieved a lot in his life. He was a very successful individual. And he looked to those things for his sense of worth, for his purpose, for his directive, for his security, for his safety, for his salvation, for his righteousness before God. But they all fell flat. They couldn't carry the weight that he hoped they would carry. And so that's what he's referring to. Paul is referring to that self-achieved righteousness when he says the righteousness of his own that comes from the law. He's left that behind. When it came down to it, his self-earned righteousness he considered to be garbage. And so Paul is not, just to clarify, Paul is not calling us to necessarily to renounce our families, quit our jobs, move across the world, you know, drastic measures. He, he did many of those things, and maybe for some of us, uh, radical changes are appropriate. But for most of us, what, what Paul is calling us to is more significant and more eternal than that. What he's calling us to is to renounce our trust and our dependence on those things for meaning and for purpose, and to instead look to Christ, who is alone of surpassing worth, and who alone can provide the salvation that we're looking for and that we need. And so, then, and so then the thing is, as we do that, as we stop looking to family and career and achievements, success, for our purpose, for our salvation, for our security, for our hope, and we instead turn to Christ, all of those things start to fall into place, and they, they start to function as they are intended to, as means to the end of glorifying God, instead of ends in and of themselves. No relationship can support that unrealistic expectation. No career can support that unrealistic expectation. No bank account or achievement can su support that unrealistic expectation that it is your security, it is your safety, it is your salvation. And yet, that's what we naturally do. We turn anything and everything into functional gods. And so what Paul is saying is, turn from that, renounce that, turn to Christ. He's of surpassing worth. He alone can provide the righteousness that you're looking for. Only Christ can do that. So when viewed properly, all of these other pursuits, the things that are part of our lives and that we shouldn't, we shouldn't give up, family, career, vocation, uh, responsibilities, all of these things, uh, they're good gifts of God. And they're given by him to fall into place and receive their energy from our relationship with him. The, the relationship that we have with Christ is supposed to be the source from which all else flows. Everything else receives its energy. Everything else receives its purpose from Christ. So the, the question that this text is, is asking of us is this. Will you trust in your own accomplishments for your worth, for your value, for your hope, for your safety, for your security, for your joy? Or will you turn to Christ in faith. And the kicker is, based on all the scriptures that we opened with, it can't be both. Jesus is exclusive. It's one or the other. And so will you trust in what you can accomplish or will you trust in what Christ has accomplished? Let's finish walking through the passage, verses 10 and 11. 
Paul says this, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. I think if we met Paul, we would think he was an obsessive person. I would think that we would view him as a little bit crazy. He would be, uh, we, we would consider him to be a maniac. He wants to know Jesus. That's the main thing for Paul. It's the only thing for Paul. He wants to be like Jesus. And he wants to be with Jesus forever. And so notice what he actually says here. We, we can gloss over this in our familiarity. That I may know him in the power of his resurrections and may share his sufferings. Paul's so crazy that he would, you, I think if you asked Paul and said, why do, you want, why do you want to suffer? That I may share in his sufferings. Paul's saying, I want to suffer. And I think what Paul would say is, well, Jesus suffered and I want to be like him. So I'm going to suffer. Jesus Jesus walked the Calvary road of self-sacrifice. I want to walk the same road. I want to be just like Jesus in every aspect I possibly can be. I want to walk that road. I want to die that death. I want to be raised again just like Jesus. I want to be like Jesus. And I'll do anything it takes to be like Jesus and to be with him forever. That's what Paul would say. And his life was so obsessive that that was undeniably true. He didn't have to say much before he proved that. He didn't have to say much before that became obvious to anybody observing his life. And so let me, just, let me just prove what I'm saying. I don't want to just make conjectures here and, and yell and then move on. Like I'm not, I want to prove this from the text. So look down at the text. So the bookend is resurrection. Beginning of verse 10, that I may know him, power of his resurrection. Verse 11, that I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So the bookend here, both sides of the bookshelf, resurrection. Paul's obsessed with resurrection. He wants resurrection because Jesus was resurrected. He longs for it. And so you might start to think, okay, here's where Paul gets a little bit self-serving. He wants, he's really doing all this because he wants to be with, he wants to be in eternity, he wants heaven. You know, just this kind of, this general existence of life forever. He doesn't want to go to hell. But, but, but really, why Paul is doing this is answered by who's in the resurrection at the end. Jesus is. Paul wants all of this because Jesus is there. The resurrection for Paul isn't just the guarantee of this kind of abstract eternal life in heaven forever. It's the guarantee of eternal life with Jesus. Jesus is there waiting for him, and he wants to be there with Jesus. So that's the first layer of this, but there's another layer to this that I think is very interesting, and it's easy to miss. Paul is also saying, and listen very carefully, because this is intriguing, Paul is also saying that we reach the resurrection from the dead the same way Jesus did, through suffering. That's what this passage is saying. So so read it again with me and see if you catch that. That I may know him, the power of his resurrection, may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, those are means to Paul's own resurrection. Now, some of you are going to get out the phone in a heretic type of thing because you're going to say, well, isn't it faith that saves you? It's not your suffering, it's Christ's suffering. It's all absolutely true. 
but I want to point to a couple of other scriptures where Paul says this exact same thing, and then let's grapple with what does it mean. So 2 Timothy 2, Paul says, if we suffer, we shall also reign with him. If we suffer, we shall also reign with him. Romans 8, 17, now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. So we can't get around this now. Paul is saying that a condition of our resurrection is suffering alongside of Christ. What does it mean? What we know it doesn't mean is that our suffering earns our salvation. So what does it mean? I think this is it. Our sacrifice on behalf of Christ is not what saves us, but it is evidence of our salvation. Let me say it again. So our sacrifice, picking up our cross, denying ourselves, dying to self, following Christ on the Calvary road of self-sacrifice, is not what saves us, but it is evidence of our salvation. Christ alone saves, that's clear. There's nothing we can add to that. That's what this whole passage is about. Remember the dogs and the evildoers? But proof of our salvation, this side of the cross, proof of our salvation is that we walk the Calvary road of self-sacrifice in the footsteps of our Savior and King. And so our willingness to suffer alongside Jesus, for Jesus, and therefore to suffer for the same reason, the salvation of the lost, is a testimony to the genuineness of our faith. And so when you step back and look at it, the means of saving the world, Christ's sacrifice, the means of communicating that sacrifice to the world, our sacrifice. I think that's what Paul's saying here. In Colossians 1.24, we're not going to turn there, but Colossians 1.24, just a few pages over in your Bible, uh, Paul says that he is filling up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ in his body. Again, pr- getting ready to press the heretic buzzer, but what he's saying is, in my body, I am suffering so that people can see the suffering of Christ. He is communicating the suffering of Christ to the world through his own suffering, through his own sacrifice. So his his sacrifice, Paul's sacrifice, doesn't have any atoning value, but it does have evangelistic value. It does have mission value. So Paul is not calling us to clarify, because you might think at this point, well, this sounds pretty miserable. Paul is not calling us to a miserable life. The book of Philippians could be summarized as, if you you find the command that's repeated the most in Philippians, it's rejoice. Rejoice always. Rejoice in the Lord. Paul is calling us to a difficult life, but a joyful life. And that difficult, joyful life opens up. So, So just a comment. The the kingdom of God, the church, being in Christ is the only place where joy and pain are not mutually exclusive. They can coexist together. Only in Christ can joy and pain, true joy and true pain, deep pain, suffering, coexist together. They are not mutually exclusive in Christ. Pain and joy complement each other in Christ. Scripture's clear on that. But Paul is not calling us to a miserable life. He's calling us to a difficult but a joyful life that opens up into an eternity 
reveling in the glory of a resurrected king. So the world will see that Jesus is of surpassing worth if we live like Jesus is of surpassing worth. That's the only way. That's the the purpose of the church. The purpose of the church is to carry on the mission of making disciples of all nations. Disciples are made by seeing the surpassing worth of Christ. And so the only way that the world sees the surpassing worth of Christ is if we live like Jesus is of surpassing worth. And that necessitates sacrifice on behalf of Christ. And Paul proves this because Paul, Philippians is called one of the prison epistles. Paul is writing from prison. He's in prison because of the gospel, because of preaching the gospel. And he's writing about how Christ is worth all of it. Uh, In a few short years, he's going to be martyred, and and he never recants. This is worth it to Paul. He means it. And so this is a call to sacrifice. It's not a both and. It's a one or the other. Either you follow Christ on the road of suffering, becoming like him in his death, so that you may attain the resurrection from the dead, or you follow your impulses. You look to your achievements. You heap up accolades, and you look to those things for purpose and for righteousness and for security and joy, for your self-worth, for your justification, for your self-actualization, for all of that. That's all garbage compared to Christ. And it doesn't carry the weight you hope it will. That's what Paul's saying. You cannot serve God in anything else. So let me attempt three points of application before we close. So the first is, if you're here, you're in Christ, pursue Christ and hunt down sin in that order. We're not perfect. And so you might read this and think, man, I'm definitely not saved. (laughs) I don't do do this. Like, I'm not. The reality is we're all on a journey of sanctification. We are not perfect, and there is grace for failure. There is grace for those relapses back into finding our justification and our self-worth in what we've accomplished. That's the nature of sin. So there's grace for that failure. And the answer to that is that we continue to pursue Christ. And so what does that mean? Just practically. It means looking to him, studying him, commune with him in prayer. We, we often overlook prayer as not pragmatic enough for us because it's just, you know, what am I even doing? I'm praying. Prayer is the core of our pursuit of Christ. Prayer is where our strength, especially as we pray the word to Christ and the Spirit illuminates it for us. This is not just an abstract intellectual exercise. God is personal. God wants to know you. And based on what Paul's saying, he wants you to know him, to know him and the power of his resurrection. That's the goal of this, a relationship with Christ, a personal relationship with Christ. And so the first point of application is pursue Christ. Simply pursue Christ. Read him in the Gospels. Read the Sermon on the Mount to know what's valuable to him. See his beauty. Commune with him in prayer. Make that part of your life. Make that part of the core of your life. And it takes discipline. It's not something that just happens because we're so distracted and distractible. You have to make yourself do it. And over time, it gets easier and easier and easier because you see his beauty and you see his worth and you see him as more desirable than anything else. And so it gets easier. There's this snowball effect to it. 
But the start of it is discipline, and there's still elements of discipline throughout it. Second point of application. Prayerfully consider what sacrifices you can make on behalf of Christ. Not to contribute to your salvation. That's the works way. That's, that's what he's preaching against. But out of gratitude for what Christ has done, out of a desire to know him and be like him, out of a desire to pursue him and see the lost saved, what sacrifices can you make? We are not called to comfort in this life. Jesus was not comfortable in this life. We are not called to comfort in this life. This life will be difficult for those who are in Christ, but it opens up into an eternity of rest, an eternity of peace. But what sacrifices can you make? Where can you give your money or your time? Who should you share the gospel with, despite the fact that you know they oppose it? They don't care for it at all. In fact, they preach against it. Go to those people. Preach the gospel to those people. How can you help a neighbor despite your cramped schedule? Simple stuff. How can you make sacrifices of your time, of your energy, of your effort, and as families to do that together? This doesn't have to be something where you remove yourself from the context of your family and feel like it's competing with uh, who you are as a family. It can be your family doing this together, and, and your kids will see this joyful pursuit, this sacrificial joyful pursuit of Christ, and they will be formed by it. I heard it said once, and this, was, this has been very formative for me, you teach what you know, but you reproduce who you are. And so if you want your kids to see that Christ is most valuable, you have to act like Christ is most valuable, and you have to do it where they can see it. You have to do it alongside them. You have to mentor them and disciple them in that and bring them alongside you. And so the simple question from this second point of application is, what's the next step of faithfulness for you? Pray it out. Ask God. He'll give you insight. And then third, if you find yourself with a life and with a lifestyle that are virtually indistinguishable from those who aren't in Christ, ask yourself why. You need to ask some hard questions. If your life doesn't look any different from the world, now you, now, you might say, okay, but uh, salvation is by faith in Christ. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. And there's grace for failure. Yes, there is. But over time, your love for Christ should grow. Your love for sin should shrink. And the sacrifices that you make along the Calvary road of self-sacrifice in the footsteps of Christ will become a greater and greater part of your life. And so if you chronically, perpetually, over time, see that your life is not different from those outside the church, those in the world, those who don't believe in Christ or claim to follow Christ, if, there's, if it's indistinguishable, you need to ask some hard questions. You need to ask, why is that? And, and you, need to, you need to pray that through. I can't come to any conclusions for you, but that's something that you have to grapple with for yourself. So let me conclude There's this section in Pilgrim's Progress, if you've read it, John Bunyan. Uh, he's kind of a difficult writer, but Pilgrim's Progress is worth reading. And there's this one section where, where Christian, who's the main character, he's on this pursuit of Christ. And there's those that are kind of coming along with him for a little while, but they, they fade into the background, they turn around, they backslide, they head home. It's too hard. It's too difficult. 
And Christian makes this plea to them, and he says, come with me. All that you forsake is not worth a little of what you're going to enjoy. I think that's what Paul's saying here. All that you forsake is rubbish compared to Christ. He's of surpassing worth. Nothing else in your life holds a candle to the reality, the weight, the worthiness, the holiness, the beauty of Christ. And so all that you forsake in the pursuit of Christ is worth it. Any sacrifice in your career, your, de- your, your career development, your bank account balance, um, any sacrifice of leisure, of comfort, any loss of reputation, worldly opportunity, in the pursuit of Christ, it's all worth it. Because Christ promises that in the kingdom, when he returns, you will reap the rewards for what you have sown here. Christ says, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust cannot destroy, where thieves cannot break in and steal. And then we can add to that, where stock market crashes don't disappoint, where the opinions of the world are rendered obsolete. Nothing can touch the treasure there. Almost anything can touch the treasure here. Paul in another place in in Romans says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. That last day, that day of resurrection, when Christ returns, he calls us home, we're restored forever, we see Jesus face to face. That's the day where we rest from our labors. That's the day where we expect and experience comfort. But until then, we continue, we work on behalf of God, knowing that our labor is not in vain. Christ is worth it, Christ is Savior. Forsake all else to follow him, that's what Paul's saying and all shall be well. Let's pray together. Lord, the truth of your word is so convicting. We, we read this and we know that none of us line up with it. None of us match even the standard of Paul, and he was imperfect. And so, Lord, we pray that you would give us grace for our failure. And we pray that you would give us strength to pursue you. Help us to see the beauty of Christ and to just be enamored by him and with him. And then, then we would turn and renounce all that we have trusted in all that we have put our hope in, and flee to Christ. And Lord, that's a continual process. We know that. It's daily. We're so tempted to relapse back into that old way of life. Guard us from that. Convict us when we find ourselves there. And draw us towards your eternal presence, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.